So uh, for those that don't know, hello, my name is Brandon. I am the minister of worship here. Um, if like, it felt very strange to not be up there tonight, but like worship team, y'all did a great job. I'm so proud of y'all. I feel like, I feel like a dad that's like sent my kids off to college. I'm like, they're just doing so good. <laughs> so I'm so proud of them. Well, welcome. Hello, everybody. Like I said, my name is Brandon. I've got to say hello to a couple of the new folks, but uh, if I haven't gotten the chance to say hello, come find me afterwards. I'd love to get to meet you. Um, so yeah, so tonight's a little different. Um, I am not usually up here in this capacity, um, but that's great one way or the other, because if you like what you hear, well, I work here, and you can always talk to me, and if you don't like what you hear, well, then I'm not the one that usually speaks. So. <laughs> I've told that joke every time that I speak, so thank you all for still laughing. <laughs> all right, so uh, I'm excited to share God's word with you tonight, but before we begin, I'm going to pray for us. So do what you do when you pray. Dear God, thank you for this day. Thank you for every single person that is here with us. Um, I pray that you would open our hearts, open our ears and our minds uh, to your word tonight. Uh, it is not my word by any measure, this all is from you. And so just, um, I pray that we would learn something good tonight. We love you very much. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So this year we are using the Gospel of Matthew, which is one of the four accounts of Jesus's time on earth, to talk about one of his most essential teachings, which is that the kingdom of heaven arrived on earth about 2,000 years ago with the birth of Jesus. And it's one of the first things that Jesus said publicly in his ministry when he said that the kingdom of heaven has arrived. And we see in the life of Jesus that God's kingdom is made known and accessible to humans. It's not some far-off distant place that we have no hope of seeing until we die. It came here on earth with Jesus, and it's been here ever since, and we can rest assured in the hope that one day it will be made perfect when he returns. So heaven's not just something in the far-off distant future. Heaven is right now as well. All right? So when we hear about a kingdom, we might have different images that come to mind about what that exactly is. I mean, a kingdom is ruled by a king or a queen, I suppose. And so we might expect someone powerful and charismatic to rule it. Or you might picture a big white castle sitting on a hill or bright colored banners flying in the sky. We have all these preconceived notions of what a kingdom looks like. So it might, it might seem kind of weird to us that the kingdom of heaven, the coolest kingdom ever ruled by God, looks like this. And who is its king? It's a poor man running around the desert talking to people. And if we're to take off our Christianity lenses for a second, that might look very strange from the outside. You're saying that God came down to earth in the form of this nobody who's saying that because he is here, the kingdom of God is here. And it looks like this. It might raise a couple of eyebrows, right? Not everyone might fully be on board for it or understand it. We might question the strange man who's talking about God's kingdom. Can we trust that he's trustworthy? How can we know that he has our best interests in mind? 
And so tonight we're going to talk about some people who we might think would have known exactly what God was all about, but who missed the point because of their preconceived notions, even when it's standing right in front of them. So tonight we are going to talk about the Pharisees. Now, before we begin, I always think it's good to know who the characters are in a story so that we can understand where they're coming from. And I think we hear Pharisee very often, and we just assume that we know what that means. Um, so let's break it down a little bit. Who are the Pharisees? The short version is that they, are, they were a school of Jewish theological thought that interpreted uh, the law. Uh, we might compare them to a Christian denomination or a Greek school of philosophy. Uh, that might be the best kind of parallel. They believed in maintaining purity law and resisted assimilation to Greek culture. And according to the Jewish historian Josephus, all right, so for those that don't know, big history nerd, Josephus, cool guy, check him out. He even talks about Jesus, like that's crazy. So it's like, wow, Jesus was a real person. Shocker. <laughs> but according to Josephus, they were even considered very popular among common people. But the Pharisees had some problems and the first of which deals with the matter of how they got into power. See, the Pharisees were strong supporters of the Romans, uh, the empire that ruled over Judea during the time of Jesus. And the, the Pharisees even helped the Romans take over the city of Jerusalem in 63 BC. Again, fascinating history story, but we'll be here all night if I talk about it. So we can talk about it later, but really cool stuff. <clears throat> And we hear in the Gospels that Jesus frequently calls the Pharisees out for being hypocrites. For the Pharisees, see, their focus was on following their interpretation of the law at the expense of taking care of people. And this is an important point that I want to make before we move on, is that the problem is not with the law itself. The law was put into place for God's people to follow him as best they could, and there's a lot of really good stuff in there about taking care of the most marginalized people in society and really cool stuff about how to worship God and show God that we love him. Like, there's good stuff in the law. The problem is that the Pharisees interpreted the law in a way that caused them to lose sight of what really matters, and that's where Jesus points out the problem, that their interpretation is hurting people. I'm really glad that we don't do that today. That was sarcasm. So we might come to see why the Pharisees would be inclined to not be the biggest fans of Jesus. He calls them hypocrites. He challenges the status quo of the religious and political power, the Romans. And he doesn't look anything like the Messiah, the promised conquering king that they had heard about all their lives. See, to them, Jesus is just a, a rabble rouser. He's a lunatic who's saying blasphemous things. And herein lies the conflict between the Pharisees and Jesus. I've lost my place. This happens every single time. Time is a flat circle. <laughs> I've been watching True Detective lately. Great show. <laughs> and so, uh, yes, we have the, the problem of the Pharisees with Jesus. 
Uh, and next, I would also, again, just making clarifying statements, I would be remiss if we didn't address the problem of our own interpretation when it comes to the Pharisees. We often think that the Pharisees and their antagonism towards Jesus is representative of the entire Jewish faith, which has led to centuries of anti-Semitism, uh, particularly from Christians of all people. And so the thing that we need to remember is that the Pharisees are a religious and perhaps more importantly, a political sect uh, who work alongside the Romans to disenfranchise their communities. They are not representative of all Jews everywhere because let's remember that Jesus and his earliest followers were all Jewish. And not all of the Pharisees were antagonistic to Jesus. We hear in the Gospel of John about Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee, who talks with Jesus about his practices. And Nicodemus is the person that Jesus says John 3.16 to, like the whole, like the most popular Bible verse in the world, right, is said to a Pharisee. And we hear later on in John that Nicodemus helps prepare Jesus' body for burial after he dies. So what I'm getting at here is that Jesus is not opposed to people. Jesus is opposed to corrupt systems and institutions which use their power to hurt people, all right? So, we have a better idea of who the Pharisees are, so let's take a look at an instance where Jesus says something very important to them. So, we're in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, uh, verse 22. So, for some context, Jesus is out and about doing what Jesus does best, healing people, um, and so we're going to dive in. So, from the good news. Then they brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and he cured him, so that the one who had been mute could speak and see. And all the crowds were amazed and were saying, can this be the son of David? So Jesus performs this miraculous task. He exercises a demon from a man, and now that man is able to speak and see. That's awesome. It's to be expected of Jesus, because Jesus is awesome. And the crowd gets it, too. They see this miracle happen, and they know who Jesus is right away. They call him the son of David, which is just another title for the Messiah. But then we hear from the peanut gallery. So let's keep reading. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons, that this man casts out the demons. Boo! <laughs> So Jesus does this really cool and amazing thing. He literally restores a man's sight and speech, and the Pharisees are so incensed by this that they claim that he was only able to do it because he himself was possessed by demons. Now, the name Beelzebul, don't worry about that. Uh, there's a whole history about that, of who or what Beelzebul is. You can talk to me about that later. I'd be happy to. History stuff. It's cool. The important thing is that the Pharisees are saying that Jesus is possessed by demons, and that's why he can do the things that he does. You ever tried to do a good thing, and then somebody makes fun of you for it, or accuses you of trying to do a bad thing? It sucks. It's like one of the worst feelings ever. Uh, I'll give you an example. I heard this all the time when I used to do pancakes. Uh, that's a, a ministry that some of our students do where they hand out free pancakes uh, to folks on Thursday nights. Uh, what did I, did I say for Thursday? Friday. Friday nights. I'm getting old. <laughs> Thank you. 
And I haven't gone in a while because, again, I'm old and I can't stay up until 2 and 3 a.m. anymore. Um, but it's a lot of fun. If you're interested, talk to Megan about it. Uh, she and a couple of our other students had that up. But we would go downtown and hand out pancakes to folks. It's the same thing every time. Are there drugs in these pancakes? <laughs> like, drugs? Really? It's like, look, I get it. It's weird that you got people out here handing pancakes out for free. Whatever, I get that. But it's like, you got to think that there's like some mass conspiracy if you think that like we're wealthy enough to afford dr to put drugs in pancakes. <laughs> and then it's like, you got to get the police involved and they're turning a blind eye and it's a whole conspiracy. And look, we laugh and we have grace for people, but that sucks. It's like we're trying to do something nice and people just look at it with utter suspicion and contempt. It sucks. And that's what happened to Jesus. He had to deal with this exact same thing. Jesus did so much good in the world, and people looked at him with suspicion at best and contempt at worst. And here's the thing is that it's not the first time that he heard this. I'd have to imagine he heard it all the time. We look in chapter 9. Jesus heals a man possessed by a demon, and the same thing happens. Man, Matthew McConaughey got it right. Time is a flat circle. <laughs> so let's look at this. And when the demon had been cast out, the one who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed and said, Never has anything like this been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, By the ruler of demons, he casts out the demons. Now, we don't hear Jesus' response in chapter 9, because the story keeps going. But in chapter 12, we get to hear what he says. And I'd like to imagine that this is Jesus finally getting fed up. It's like he's heard this so many times, and now he's finally going to clap back. So let's see what happens. It says, He knew what they were thinking and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your own exorcists cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Ooh. <laughs> but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man? Then indeed, the house can be plundered. I think this is something that we often miss, is that Jesus is a really good rhetorician. Jesus is saying here, it doesn't make any sense that I would be working for demons by casting out demons. Casting out demons doesn't do anything beneficial to demons. And what's more so, if I, Jesus, the Son of God of all people, am possessed by demons, then your other guys are far worse off. And then Jesus says, but the good news because Jesus always has good news for us, is that if I'm casting out demons through the power of the Holy Spirit, which he is, then the kingdom of God is here. You see, Satan might be powerful, like a strong man, but Jesus will subdue him and steal us out of Satan's grasp. That's awesome. It's like Jesus is waving his hands at the Pharisees and saying, pay attention. The person that you've been waiting for is right here in front of you. Don't miss it. But the Pharisees miss the point. They're too caught up in their own preconceived notions about what God is like to see the good that is happening right in front of them. 
And I think it's pretty easy for us to do the same. We have these preconceived notions about who God is, and so we miss the good work that God does in front of us, or we wrongly assume that the bad things in front of us come from him. We might think, or we might have been taught to think, that God is angry, waiting to smite us at any moment if we make the most tiny mistake, or we think if we get the wrong idea about this particular doctrine that our salvation is revoked. Or maybe we think because of the existence of evil in the world that that must mean that God is evil and maliciously allows evil to happen for some sick, twisted reason. How on earth can we trust God? With all the doubts and questions that are raised by the mere reality of existence, how do we know that God is trustworthy? How do we know that God is good? And there's no judgment in that question. We have to ask that question if we're going to authentically follow Jesus. And we might all be at different points with that question, and that's okay. That's what we're here for, is to work through this question and learn more about God together. But there is an answer to the question. Can we trust God to be good? The answer is yes. We have so much proof that God is good. Look around us. Right now, we have a community of people who, despite all of our differences, love one another and do life together. Only a good God can come up with the possibility of community. There's joy that comes when we create something, or the sense of wonder that comes when we look at the beauty of nature. We can even witness miracles. A loved one delivered from sickness, or when we receive forgiveness from somebody who we've hurt, we look back and we see how much much we've grown, or seeing how God was there with you during a difficult period of life, those are miracles too. And we have all these things that point to the goodness of God. And most importantly, we have the example of Jesus to see God's goodness. I think we overlook it sometimes. We have this idea of God as angry and vengeful, but that same God that we call angry and vengeful is also Jesus. And I think we would be hard-pressed to call Jesus angry and vengeful if we read the Bible. But rather, I see that Jesus acts with mercy, that he has compassion for everyone, even when they don't fully understand what he's doing. We see Jesus, who very patiently teaches his disciples how to love people, even when things fly over their heads. And we see that even when people sin, he stands as their advocate and protects them. Jesus is the example we have of who God is. See, we can all think about things in our life or things that we find meaningful to show God's goodness, but we can all look to Jesus as the example. And I realize for us that this might either be super clearly obvious or this might be a very challenging thing depending on where we are in our walk with Jesus. But trusting God is necessary for us to grow in our faith. We have to get to a place where we can trust God to work with us for good. I could talk to you about how much better your life would be and how you'd be at peace knowing that you can trust God, and that's true. It's absolutely true, but let's get to brass tacks. We have to trust God so that we can get through life when it gets hard because hardship is a reality. We are all alive, and we will face difficult things in life. Jesus himself said that. And even when we trust Jesus, things will still be painful. We will still hurt, 
and cry and wonder why these bad things are happening to us. The difference is that we know we can trust Jesus. We can at least know that he cares about us in our pain, and we can know that he isn't the one who causes suffering for us. It's a very subtle shift, but it makes a world of difference. If we know that God doesn't act maliciously and cause our suffering, what that means is that we can trust him to walk with us through it. If God is in our corner, it means that we can talk to him about our pain. We can share in our worries, our doubts, our frustrations. And Jesus invites us to do this with him. In chapter 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What Jesus is saying is we don't have to carry our troubles by ourselves, that he is strong enough to carry them. All he asks for in exchange is for us to follow him. And that brings us to the last part of this story, which admittedly is the most difficult. So I'd like to set a preface before we go forward. Um, so we are going to talk about was often referred to as the unforgivable sin. Um, but before we jump to conclusions of what that might be, um, I'd like for us to just listen together, and we'll work through it, okay? So, after making his point about who he is, Jesus says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, people will be forgiven for every sin and blasphemy, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. So Jesus says that any sin, even speaking out against him, can be forgiven, except this one, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So what the heck is that supposed to be? It's like, gee, Brandon, we've talked about the goodness of God, and now we got this new thing, and it's like, I don't even know what that's supposed to mean. It's like, well, what if I already committed the sin, and now I'm doomed? Ah, well, relax. All right, we're going to talk about it. So before we get into things, I want to put us at ease so that we can listen well to the rest of the talk. So if you're, like, just tuning in, like, tune in. <laughs> Nobody in this room has committed the unforgivable sin. All right? I promise you, if you are in this room, or if you are watching the podcast on wherever podcasts are, <laughs> or if you're watching the live stream on YouTube, you have not committed the unforgivable sin. All right? So, let's get into why. <clears throat> The problem at hand is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So what is that? Well, first off, what is blasphemy? Okay, so simply put, blasphemy is openly rejecting something because we don't respect it. So in the case of this text in Matthew, which is where this comes up, so that's kind of our example, we see that the Pharisees look at the good work that Jesus is doing and they call it evil. They're saying that Jesus, who is the ultimate good, is evil and unworthy of the respect he deserves. And they reject him. That's blasphemous. Okay? You all on board so far? Cool. Thanks for listening. 
So then what does it mean to do that to the Holy Spirit? Okay, well, let's think about what the Holy Spirit does and who the Holy Spirit is because the Holy Spirit is a person. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit our advocate who bestows grace upon us and transforms us from broken sinful creatures into creations who can love God and others well. So the Holy Spirit does this by convicting us of our sins, showing us that the sinful things we do are wrong, and then it teaches us that we need the redemptive power of God to be saved. Okay? So the Holy Spirit says, hey, you need Jesus. It's pretty simple, right? The Holy Spirit tugs on our hearts and points us to God. And he does this everywhere, all the time. The Holy Spirit is always working on our hearts. Okay? But if we're stubborn in our hearts and reject the Holy Spirit and the work he's trying to do, we can't find our way to God. We might think we don't need God's grace or that we don't deserve it. We might not be looking for God because we're too preoccupied with other things. If we don't recognize that we need God's grace and try to pursue God, the Holy Spirit can't do his job. We've rejected him, and that is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So it's, it's rejecting the call towards God. Okay? So... How can I say that none of us in this room have done that? Because we're all here. We're learning about God and how to better follow him. See, the Holy Spirit has tugged on our hearts and shown us that following Jesus and accepting his love for us is important. So regardless of where you are in your walk with Jesus, so long as you're walking towards Jesus, you're good. All right? The thing that I've heard from multiple people over the course of my life, and I, I believe this to be true, is that if you're worried that you've committed the unforgivable sin, it means you haven't committed it. And, you know, I think that's true. That's all well and good. But that doesn't mean that we have to live in a spirit of fear. It just means that we have to recognize that we need God, that we can't save ourselves, it means that we have to rely and trust in the goodness of God and trust that God loves us enough to save us. And we might be saying, well, you know, that, that's too difficult. I, I, I've sinned too much. My sins are too unforgivable. We miss, the, we miss a really cool thing in that scripture that Jesus says is the end there. See, we, we immediately jump to the end of that sentence and we're like, ah, there's this one unforgivable sin. But look at what Jesus says before it. He says, every sin and blasphemy can be forgiven. There is nothing that you can do, either in a, your past or moving forward, that is inescapable from God's love and forgiveness. Okay? You can be the most antagonistic atheist saying the, the worst things about God. But if you come to Jesus and ask him for forgiveness and to repent, you've let the Holy Spirit do his job and therefore have not committed the unforgivable sin. All right? And still, this, this problem persists. We think, I'm unforgivable, I'm unworthy of love. How can I trust God? 
well, I think the way that we do is by realizing that when Jesus came to earth in the form of a human, that it meant that God understands what it means to be human. Jesus was thirsty. Jesus was hungry. Jesus was tired. Jesus knew what it meant to grieve when he lost Lazarus. He knew what it felt like to be betrayed by one of his best friends. And in the case of the Pharisees, Jesus knew what it meant to be hurt by religious people. And I know that that's not everybody's story here, but for many of us, including me, that is. And even still, when Jesus was being executed as a criminal of the state, those same religious people that hurt him, he begged his father to forgive them. And so what I would hope for us um, as I finish up here is that I hope that we can know and trust just how immensely much God loves us. He loved us enough to send his son so that we can know and have an example of what God's love looks like for us, that he was willing to die for us, and meaning that God will do anything to make sure that we are with him again. That is how I know that God is good. Let's pray together. God, the simplest thing that we can say is thank you. We thank you for your immense creativity in this beautiful world that you've created. We thank you for the fact that you understand what relationality looks like and gave that gift to us that we would not have to do life alone, that we can do it with others and that we can do it with you. And most importantly, we're thankful for your son who showed us what your love looks like. I pray that moving forward, that in the midst of questions and in the midst of difficult things, that we would know that you always walk in accompaniment with us. And when life is too difficult for us to do it by ourselves, that we can give our burdens to you because we trust that you love us enough to carry them. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.